0: Tell us what you know, Jack. We were seated around the island in the Cohen's kitchen. Candace had brewed a fresh pot of coffee, and Jack had gone to the liquor cabinet and pulled out a bottle of whiskey to spike the caffeine.
1: I don't know much. Sharon called me last week, out of the blue, you know. She asked me to have lunch with her. I mean, when was the last time we were willingly together under the same roof when we just didn't have to be?
0: Sharon had asked Jack to meet her at Coral Gables, at a Cuban sandwich shop, where they had the least chance of running into one of Abe's banking associates or any of the ladies from her various social or charitable organizations. They'd ordered two Cubanos and taken a table in the back. Sharon's family background was financially modest, but religiously they were extravagantly abundant. Sharon had grown up attending church three times a week, twice on Sundays. Arriving in her family's battered, pre-owned SUV, dressed in ill-fitting clothes from second-hand stores, crammed in the back among seven brothers, all of whom, because they were boys, got more of their parents' attention and larger portions at the dinner table. When Sharon met Abe in high school, fat and unathletic, unpopular and not particularly bright, but richer than anyone Sharon had ever known, she knew that she could have him if she wanted him. And if she had him, she would never have to shop at thrift stores again. She didn't love him, but she could live with him and all that he could provide. Sharon was Abe's first sexual conquest. If you called ejaculating on yourself a conquest. Abe's problem had delayed her plans. It had taken her months longer to get pregnant than she had thought it would. But once she was certain that she was, she told her parents immediately and they had gone quickly and indignantly to Abe's parents to demand he do the right thing. David and Candace had been unequivocal. Abe and Sharon were going to have this baby, and they would do everything within their power to help the new young couple. That had included buying them a small house and providing a monthly allowance while they both finished high school. And Abe got his degree in business management at the University of Miami. Ten months before his college graduation, Abe had his first affair with a fellow student in his business class. Sharon couldn't put her finger on it, but she sensed Abe was becoming distracted from the life she wanted to build for herself. So nine months before college graduation, Sharon accidentally got pregnant again. Three weeks after the graduation ceremony, thanks to a nanny arranged for by Candace, she and Abe took their first real vacation together. Five days on the island of Maui, compliments of the Coens. And the day after they got back, Abe started working at the bank for his father. At least that was how Jack and I had always understood their story. We'd had plenty of good laughs over the years at the ease in which the unschooled, unsophisticated Sharon had manipulated his big brother, and how anyone with two more neurons than Abe possessed would have seen through her in a nanosecond. On the other hand, we also knew damned well what the attraction was for Abe. Sharon had been willing to live without love, without joy or passion, in exchange for a lifetime of financial security. But she had always lived with respect. She had been raised to be submissive to her father, her brothers, and her husband. Abe appreciated the deference she offered to him as head of the family, and he absolutely savored the superiority his new religion bestowed upon him over anyone who deviated from norms they had decided upon— white, heterosexual, conservative Christians. The sense of power was addictive. Sharon was paying a heavy price for her material comfort, I knew. Xavier had tried to extract the same price from me once upon a time. But from what she had told Jack over their Cubanos the week before, she was starting to feel as if her tab had been paid in full.
1: She thinks Abe's screwing around on her again. She wanted my help in finding out for sure. (laughs)
0: Jack lifted his cup of steaming hot coffee and took a deep breath of the whiskey before he took a sip.
1: I asked her what sort of help she wanted, and why the hell she thought I'd want to do it. I mean, I hope she takes him for all he's got and ever hopes to get. But I'm totally uninvested in the personal life of either of them, right? So, Sharon, this simple little fundamentalist who likes to go around pretending she doesn't have a shred of guile in her body puts down her sandwich, and leans over the table and says to me, "All oh, secret agent godfather, I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. I have information about your brother that you will want to have, and I'll give it to you if you help me. My.
0: She was the only one who spoke for a good five minutes. David broke the silence.
2: What do you think she could mean?
1: No idea. Gave her an STD. Has a slew of unpaid parking tickets? Killed someone? Stop it, Jack. Anyway, I hired a retired cop, and he's been tailing Abe for three days now to see if we can find out how he's spending his spare time.
0: Have you found out anything? I asked, before his parents could rebuke him.
1: Nothing yet. Except, Clint, you'll never guess who Sharon's made an appointment with to, you know, get her ducks in a row to see if she needs a
0: divorce. You've got to be kidding me.
1: Our family's giving Xavier a whole lot of business lately. I think Alvaro has a thing for you.
0: Candace had put away the coffee pot, and we were now drinking our whiskey with sweet vermouth and bitters. Candace was teasing a maraschino cherry out of her glass with a long, elegant manicured finger. The information Jack had shared with us about Abe and his proactive response to it had calmed me considerably. Spending the night as the Cohens' guest, visiting with these people I loved over perfect Manhattans while we awaited the delivery of a large pepperoni with extra cheese pizza from the joint that had always been my favorite since I was a kid. This seemed like a well-deserved reward. I could relax this evening. Abe was on everyone's radar.
1: I saw the way Alvaro looked at you.
0: Oh, I didn't notice a thing. David emphasized his point with a dismissive wave of his hand. Of course, unless it had been a drop-dead gorgeous woman making a direct pass
2: at him, David wouldn't have noticed. Besides, Candace, he's married. Two kids. (laughs) Get real.
0: It never failed to amaze me the way people could be so unimaginative. As if someone's being married locked up their sexuality in a neat little box. The way they accepted people's facades just as the way they were intended to be received. At face value.
1: Well, he certainly seemed straight to me, too. I asked him to go out and hit South Beach with me when he was here, but he said he'd take a rain check. The next time he was in Miami, he said, after all the money was transferred, we'd go out on a pussy hunt. (laughs) Jack! Sorry, Mom. Alvaro's word, not mine. Anyway, I didn't pick up anything about Alvaro on my gaydar.
2: Really? Oh, touchy-feely. Hugging and kissing each other. It's a Mediterranean
0: thing, you know? David waving a hand again and knocking it into his crystal glass, which Candace deftly reached out to right before it toppled over.
1: I know you're a little tipsy. That's what I know.
0: She moved his glass back a few inches on the counter, out of the way of his expressive hands. We were all a little tipsy by that point in the evening, which was why not one of us heard a car pull up in the driveway or the door to the kitchen open. Or noticed Abe standing by it until he spoke.
3: Hell of a thing to come home to. Half my inheritance sold to a fucking faggot. Oh, dear. And not just that. Oh, no. I've been to the bank. I've looked over the activity on your brand new account, you little queer.
0: Abe was resting a hand on the door frame and leaning into it in an attempt to keep his balance. Apparently, he was even tipsier than any of us.
3: Tell me. How's a cocksucker like you coming to $4 million in
1: less than a week? Language, Abe.
0: Jack held up an admonishing finger.
1: You know, we really prefer to be called trouser pilots these days.
0: Yeah, well,
3: your little pilot buddy over here is going to jail. It can't be legal. Whatever he did to get $4 million, and I have the feds looking into it.
2: Ugh. You don't have the feds doing anything, Abe. Except laughing behind your back about what a jackass you are.
3: There wouldn't be an inheritance at all if Clint hadn't stepped up. Why him?
0: It was a noise I'd heard before. When I'd beaten him by over 30 seconds in the quarter mile during elementary school intramural track meet when I was in fourth grade and he was in sixth. When I made the varsity football team as a freshman and he couldn't make first string even as a junior when, even though I was several years younger than he was, I passed my driver's test before he did.
3: Why him? I told you I have some wealthy friends and I've been working on them to invest in the bank. Your own lawyer, for example, Xavier. Why would you let a fucking fruit buy into the family business?
0: Jack's head swiveled as fast as mine did, and we locked eyes, but we both managed to stifle our nearly uncontainable guffaws. I like to think I'm a discreet man, And Xavier's secret certainly wasn't mine to divulge, but I was fairly sure that it was only the doorbell ringing, announcing the delivery of our pizza pie, that kept me from blurting out, Xavier, you mean Xavier Sousa. Funny you didn't know he was a trouser pilot, too.
4: David told me that you are greedy, and that any business I have in the future can be between him and me. You won't have anything at all to do with it."
0: David never said anything remotely like that. Alvaro and I were faced off in the courtyard of his hacienda. I had driven there by myself, shortly after his summons early on the morning after I'd flown back from Miami. His wife and kids were nowhere to be seen, and we were surrounded by his thugs. Yet my certainty in David's loyalty made me feel more invulnerable than I certainly was. I got
4: online like Jack told me, and I was looking at my new account with $16 million in it, and I think there should be 20 there. I paid you too much for a little bit of work to move my money around. You took advantage of me.
0: Alvaro, I don't believe anyone's taken advantage of you in your life.
4: 50,000, maybe, that's what it's worth to have my money moved, not 4 million.
0: 50,000. The hoops that I've had to jump through. You think I would do that for a bullshit 50,000? You have got to be fucking kidding.
4: No, I am not kidding, and you will give me my money back, all of it, but your fee,
0: 50,000. I did not need this. Not this morning. My head had been throbbing since Jack had awakened me at the crack of dawn, with the news that Abe had decided to come and visit me in Merida.
1: (sighs) What can I tell you? He was at Mom and Dad's all day yesterday. I mean, you know, passed out on the kitchen floor after he had his little hissy fit. But you left to go back to Mexico before he woke up with what was apparently the mother of all hangovers. He didn't want to face Sharon looking like something the dog had dragged around the yard. Have her call him out on all the sins of demon rum or something. So he just stayed at mom and dad's and whined to mom all day for ice water and hot tea and aspirin and cold compresses.
0: I had closed my eyes. The point, Jack, what's the point? How did his idea of coming to Mexico even come up?
1: All his idea, I swear to you. He just told me he was going to fly down there and he'd shut the fuck up and wouldn't say another word to the feds or anyone else if you could prove to him your business is legit.
0: Ah, well, I'd replied as matter-of-factly as I could manage. You know I can't do that.
1: Ah, well, you're going to have to. Planes fly to Mexico. He's a big boy and he can book a ticket. Short of handcuffing him to a drain pipe in my basement, I don't know how to stop him.
0: Well, you're just more help than the fucking Red Cross, Jack. I'd nearly broken my cell phone hanging up on him. And now this Alvaro pacing menacingly around his courtyard, four guys with automatic weapons on their backs, eyeing him in case he wanted them to do anything, like use me for a punching bag or shoot me. Here's the deal, Alvaro, my voice surprisingly steady as I spoke. The Coens are good friends of mine, and I have a deal with them, too. Anything happens to me, every penny in your account gets transferred into mine. And you, a foreign drug kingpin, can take up getting it back with the U.S. Justice Department. Not a word of it was true, but in a pinch I can spread bullshit as thick as I have to. I thought surely Alvaro had broken a hand, hard as he punched the adobe pillar to his left as soon as I was done speaking. I was still shaking by the time I got home, so I popped a soul to help me regain my equilibrium, lost my t-shirt and sandals, and flopped onto a lounge chair on my patio. I had recently become a very wealthy man, and I'd supposed my life was going to take on a new ease and luster because of it. But it wasn't yet 11 a.m. and I badly needed a nap. The sun was directly overhead high noon, when I woke up soaked in sweat, blinking in surprise at Alvaro standing over me. What the fuck, Alvaro? Alvaro bent over me and gave me the biggest smile I'd ever seen on his face.
4: I think you need to learn to be more respectful of me and my business, my friend.
0: He stood and stepped back so I could see the half-dozen federales standing behind him on my patio. What. The. Fuck. I was stunned stupid. My hands were shaking so badly the federales had a hard time putting handcuffs on me, but they managed. Pedro had the wherewithal to think to throw my shirt over my shoulders as I slid my feet into the sandals, and the cops crowded me out my front door. I watched Alvaro stand outside my front door, rocking on his heels and laughing. And my neighbors watched me as I was herded into the back of the police truck. Look, I said, speaking in what was still my rudimentary Spanish. Where are you taking me?
4: We are delivering you to your new home, Senor Kennedy, courtesy of Senor Alvaro Jorge Moreno.
0: There was much I didn't know about the operation of drug cartels, but I suspected, much like running a bank in the US required that you cozy up to the feds who were periodically sent in to audit your books, running drugs in Mexico required you have the police on your payroll. I would just need to figure out who among the police in the rat hole of a jail Alvaro had had me tossed into were on his. I took a seat on the cell's concrete floor sitting cross-legged and hiding a random semi-erection with the shirt Pedro had so thoughtfully thrown over my shoulders as I was marched out of my house. The air was humid and warm and smelled of human waste, and my cellmates, I would soon learn their names, Luis, Gustavo, Manuel, Jose, Carlos, and another Pedro entirely, did not particularly excite my attraction, so I blamed the hard-on on pure adrenaline. Louise's eyes darted between my legs, and a big smile revealed several missing teeth. I think I see what I can do for you, he said to me, which was how I learned that he spoke quite passable English. Look, I replied, who do I need to bribe in order to make a phone call? Though he was disappointed that information was all I required of him, Louise made the bargain deal with the youngest and tidiest-looking jailer, of 500 pesos in exchange for three minutes of phone time. "'You need to call your attorney?' the young man asked, leaning close to me through the bars of the cell. I could tell exactly what he'd had for lunch when he spoke, but I didn't want to offend him by covering my nose with my hand. The truth was, now that I was going to get to use the phone, I wasn't sure at all who to call. I'd have told you just a week before that my few weeks of political activism had made me a boatload of friends in high places in Merida, but when push came to shove, I wasn't sure which ones of them were my friends and which ones were Alvaro's. Pedro, my houseboy, not my cellmate, was the only person I knew I could absolutely trust in all of Mexico, but if he had the power to get me sprung from this hellhole, he would also have had the power to keep me from getting thrown in jail in the first place.
3: Oh, senor, you need to call your attorney?
0: No, I told him. I need to call my architect. I called Miguel, and Miguel called Pablo, and within the hour, Pablo was the one who was talking to me from outside my rotten jail cell. He had his white linen blazer draped over his shoulders, so in deference to the filth of the place, he stood back while the young and tidy guard unlocked the door so I could exit. Vuelve pronto, my cellmates called to me, Luis adding, Vuelve pronto a verme. It was a pleasure, boys, I called back as the cell door clanked
2: behind me. Alvaro Moreno got you into this.
0: We walked briskly down the hallway out of the jail and into the hot, sticky, fresh air of freedom. He did. Pablo made a disparaging sound as he clicked his keychain and unlocked the doors of his fresh-from-the-factory Cadillac Escalade. He told me to get inside and went around the back of the car to slide in behind the wheel himself. It was remarkable to me that he had come alone to the jail to see my release, and that he was driving his own vehicle. This had not, up until that moment, been my experience of how a drug kingpin went about his daily travels. Kingpins, so far as I had seen, traveled in packs, within drawing distance of their hired guns. I would give my left testicle for a hot shower. (laughs)
2: We never know what we may be asked to give up for the things we want, but for today, I am taking you to your home where you might shower, as well as keep both your nuts. For
0: that, I am most grateful.
2: Even so, I must ask you something. Of
0: course. He said this while negotiating the turn onto Merida's main highway. Why are you working for Alvaro? It was a question I didn't know how to answer. It occurred to me that my ignorance of how drug cartels worked, including not knowing what kind of bad blood, what kind of rivalry, might lie between my employer and his competitor who had just bailed me out of jail.
2: Alvaro Moreno, Senor Kennedy, as your American saying goes, small potatoes. He is also a very crazy man, and I want you to explain to me why it is worth it to you to put up with such a big crazy for such a small man.
0: I tried to formulate my response because 20 million dollars is a lot of potatoes to me. But before I could, I heard what sounded like a car backfiring on the corner behind us. And a nanosecond later, the upper part of the driver's side window of Pablo's car shattered. And Pablo shouted, get down, as he reached around my head, shoved it to the floor of the passenger side of the vehicle and stomped on the gas.
2: That was close.
0: Pablo waved at me to come out from under my seat and onto the street where a crowd had gathered around a lone gunman laying prone on the concrete in front of a neighborhood taqueria.
2: Who do you think could have tipped off, Alvaro, that you were released from jail?
0: No one. No one I can think of. Certainly not Miguel.
2: Of course not Miguel.
0: Pablo pulled me from the Cadillac at the corner of the Avenida Reforma in Paseo de Monteo, where the Escalade had crashed after the car had taken a bullet in its windshield and Pablo had careened it into the stand of a fruit vendor, who stood as shaken and dumbfounded as I was myself, but unhurt, though his carts looked as if it had been put through a crusher at a chop shop. Two federales stood over the man who was lying face down on the concrete. They had already cuffed him, and before he'd passed out cold, he'd responded by pissing in his tan cotton slacks, a development I could both see and smell.
3: Oh, so sorry about your new car, senor Pablo.
0: The cop brushed off a piece of non-existent dust from Pablo's pristine white blazer. In Mexico, the average policeman earned $300 American per month. The cartel bosses had an easy time buying the loyalty of the police, providing each policeman with an additional $300 a month doubled their salaries and counted for peanuts in the
2: cartel's accounting. Senor Kennedy, I think you know this man.
0: My legs felt hollow. But somehow I made them work and made my way over to Pablo and the man cowering on the sidewalk. As I approached, Pablo kicked the man under his shoulder so hard he flipped over on his back. Oh my God! I gasped. Javier? One of the federales, the one who stood closest to Pablo with his arms folded over his chest, asked. What do you want
3: us to do with this guy?
0: Pablo looked at me for an instant, as if I might have an answer, then shrugged and said.
2: Throw him in my cup. I have a few questions I want to ask of him when he wakes up.
4: I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stain Fortune. It was produced by myself, Joe Calderwood, and Jeff Messer. Casting by Charlie Wilson. And performances by Haven Kai, Brooks Wallace, Alan Chandler, Lucas York, Lauren Otis, Charlie Wilson, and Zach Hamrick. Music written and performed by Freddie Elmberg. I wage wars through the water Thinking I'm on I'm trying to make you live it all I'm just a working man And oh my love detests I can't get no sleep Can't get no rest The beauty you've lost Just throw me into the fire So get on your knees And say a prayer for me I'm living this hell It's eternity Cause I can't not I've done my deed and I don't help out. I can't see my love The devil take away the life Of the dead man That took him from the light He was an innocent man Working on a bridge And the devil sent a soul To make sure So get on your knees and say a prayer for me I'm living this hell, it's eternity Cause I can't breathe.